bit early for you in the morning. Were you on the it's nice. shift? It's fine. <laughs> you know Americans, they wake up at 5 a.m. every day. I know when I lived there, all oh, 2000, I had my program on NBC. Mm-hmm. I was up at uh, 5.30 every morning and they like putting loads of makeup on you. <laughs> I've never seen so much bloody makeup. I look like <laughs> Oprah Winfrey. Estelle Donata. Churros. Brigadero. Calzone. Apple pie. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Welcome back, everyone, for a third season of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. And I couldn't be more excited because my guest today is one of the most charismatic and beloved chefs in the United Kingdom and in the rest of the world. He has written over 15 cookbooks. His TV credits include more than 25 shows, from my personal favorites, Ready, Steady, Cook, to his current show on ITV, Ainsley World Cup Favorites. In 2019, he was rewarded with the most excellent order of the British Empire for his service to broadcasting and culinary arts. And most importantly, and especially this year, he's a proud gunner. Mr. Ansley Harriet, how are you? <laughs> I mean, what a lovely, lovely introduction. Two important questions to start right away. Have yeah. you ever been to Portugal? Oh, yeah, I've been to Portugal. It's sad to say that I sort of normally get invited to go off and play golf or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Which is, okay. uh, which is fine. You have the sunniest climate there than anywhere else in Europe. Uh, more sunshine than anywhere else. And I have friends who absolutely adore it down there. And I suppose being a, a football fan too, and for what they've achieved, even though the, the great player Ronaldo is coming towards the end of his time. But I've always loved it. I've always loved it. And uh, we have an area in Vauxhall. It's called Vauxhall in London. There's lots of Portuguese restaurants there. And when you go down there, especially when the football's on, it is the best place to be. Yeah, Fantastic. Yeah, You're talking about me being a gunner. To ask you, are you happy this year so far? Delighted, delirious. And we do feel a little bit nervous because we've not been like this since... I don't know what, at least 10 years ago where we were perhaps in a position where we might have challenged for the title. But sitting on top of the league, I know we're going into a World Cup break. It's the last game coming up this uh, weekend before we go into a break. But as a belief, you don't beat Spurs, even though it was at home. You don't beat Liverpool um, at home. You don't beat Chelsea away unless there is something confident about you. I think I know the answer, but who was the better cook, your mom or your dad? I think mum, because I was really lucky, uh, you know, really, really lucky that when I got home, my mum was there. She was cooking and that would not have happened without my dad going out to work. He was a professional pianist and entertainer and he was uh, providing the money. So my mum didn't have to look at what she was putting in her shopping trolley, if you know what I meant. There was a certain freedom to it. That freedom allowed us to express ourselves in the kitchen. When I go to some of my friends' houses, they, when it came to meal times, I'd have to leave because there was only enough for the family. Do you know what I mean? But in my house, if anyone was visiting us, it was sit down, pull up a chair, come eat. You know, it was very, very open. And it's no surprise that not only did I go into the cooking profession, my sister was a home economics teacher. She's only just retired. She did it for 30-odd years. She absolutely loved it. And my brother was married at 21 to his wife. Now he has loads of grandchildren all over the place, and both of them get in the kitchen and cook. So she introduced to us the love, the art, the appreciation 
of cooking and, you know, bringing people, friends and family together. And uh, that has never left me. So she, my mum, was the most creative cook. And to be honest, my parents did separate and uh, broke up when I was about 12. So I didn't get the real benefits of my dad until later on. But when I did go to his house, he took great pleasure in cooking something really slow, you know, marinating a bit of chicken, putting it in the fridge overnight, or making in the morning when I woke up, he always used to have his cornmeal porridge and he'd mix it with cinnamon and a bit of allspice and he'd, he'd cook it down very, very slowly. You know, it's, uh, yeah. So, yep, in answer to your question, mum, but when dad put a bit of effort in, it wasn't too bad. Or something she used to make you remember. Yeah, her red peas, red pea stew, which was uh, a very uh, slow cooked dish of uh, pig's trotters, which you you know about that, you know the pork thing, whole pig's trotters, salted beef. The beef had to be salted, salt that two days before. Thyme, coconut, the red beans would be soaked overnight, then the, pouring off the water, boil them again, and so you'd have these beautiful. It's like the red kidney beans. And then you put your meat and your vegetables and she'd make her dumplings and put in there. It was a process that took probably two days. And as children, we used to call it floating duvet stew. Do you know the duvets? Mm, <laughs> yeah. you sleep because you'd be breaking wind all the time. <laughs> but it was the most delicious thing ever. The great thing about food like that, David, is that you could, for two days, you could smell it developing do you know what I mean the yep. marinating then the boiling the next day of the kidney beans and you could smell the that kind of breaking down all that kind of fibers and everything else slowly cooking and the way she did it it was just it was love and then you knew by the time you sat down to eat it it was just going to be an explosive occasion explosion of flavor of love and always conversation but just people around the table because I think she took great pleasure in having quite a nice kitchen and dining area, inviting people around. So, you know, we would have relatives that would visit from the Caribbean or from America. You know, I've got lots of relatives down in Florida or in New York, and they'd come over and they'd stay with us. And so it was food from your home country brings out a different type of conversation. It takes you back to your youth and, you know, the way they would talk to my Auntie Pauline or my Auntie Daphne, they would suddenly, the conversations, oh, Peppy, you used to do, my mother's name was Peppy. Peppy, do you remember when you used to do this? Oh, yes, Daphne. And he'd climb the tree and chuck down the coconut and the coconut would come down, he'd chop it, we'd drink the juice, then we'd scoop out the inside of the coconut and that would go into the food, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. It was just like, you know, and as a kid, you could imagine because it was, it was like reading a book you know, someone climbing up this long coconut tree to chop down a coconut. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Have you, have you tried to make that dish? Yeah, um, it doesn't taste anything like it. it it's always like that. It never does. No, never it does. never tastes anything no. like it. And um, because she had an ability that when she was cooking, it was, uh, I'd say to her, even later on when I was experimenting and I wanted to kind of keep, uh, you know, capture some of her recipes because sadly I, I lost, Oh, we lost her, the family lost her to pancreatic cancer when she was 65, which is my age now. And I can't believe that my mother died at such a young age. But I tried to get some recipes out of her. And I remember her, I'd say, Mum, how much of that do you put in? She said, a handful. 
And I said, handful. She said, well, yeah, just a handful. She said, <laughs> so, you know, whether that was one, two, three, four, five ounces, we'll never know. It was a handful. We just know it was a handful. That's yeah, it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and so it was, uh, you know, everything was cooked very, very slowly and very, very lovingly. And uh, I have tried to recreate that dish. And my sister got quite close. But um, she didn't put quite the re- handful yet. Yeah, no, she hasn't got the handful right yet. She, I know. And I, th- I think we've been Europeanized. You know, we need a little bit more Caribbean influence to make yeah. it taste real sweet. <laughs> you talk about your family. Do they still give you a slack because you're the young one and they still try to give you tips when you cook oh, all oh, the time? Never stops, you know. And um, even when I'm, uh, I'm on Monday, I'm about to go into studio to record a Christmas show. And it goes out Christmas Day, and it's very, very lovely. And I feel very privileged to be able to, for people to switch their TV on if they do on Christmas Day. And I'm there, and I do a little bit of cooking. I've got a few guests that come on and stuff like that. And I talked to my sister a few days ago, and I said I was going to do this snow dome, which is like an uh, Italian. Uh, do you know the zocotto, like mm-hmm. a baked Alaska? You know, yeah. the Italian thing with the meringue on top of it. And I was going to get all the bits of Christmas stuff that you've got left over and blend it with ice cream and glassy cherries and line the dish and everything with um, with the sponge. And I said, well, you don't want to be doing it like that. She said, you don't want to do it like that. I said, sorry. <laughs> She started telling me, David, about why don't you do something completely different, not even helping me to aid me in what to improve the dish or to make the dish look good. No, you don't want to be doing that. Why don't you do something else? Why? I made a lovely trifle the other day, she said, <laughs> and it will be fun. <laughs> she started telling me, changing everything. I said, sis, I said, you've got to understand it's, you know, a lot of people watch it and they just want a wow fact. They want to look at something and think that's really, really great. I said, I'm doing some, uh, some bow buns and I'm going to be filling that with a kind of a Christmas festivity and stuff like that. Oh, she says. Oh, are you sure you've got enough time to do it? She's telling me off, you know what I mean? And, and, and I love her. you, you got to love it. And they will always, I suppose, being the youngest, I'm, I'm always going to be like the, uh, not quite like her children, but almost just before the children. We're parents. Are you a parent? No, not yet. No, no, no. Well, I, you know, I've got, I've got three of them. And uh, you never stop parenting. You never stop saying, why don't you do this or why don't you do this or can I help you? So I can understand it and that's why I don't get angry with it. But, you know, I can I can laugh and joke with you about it. Yeah. We talked before we started recording and just talk a little bit now. I know the show came back now, but I want to talk about the show when it was 20 years ago, Ready, Steady, Cook. Yeah. Because why do you think people are so drawn to the show? Because the show has had a huge success. And for people yeah. who don't know, you can still see on YouTube, there's a few videos still there. There was yeah. amazing chefs. Uh, some, unfortunately, are not with us anymore, like Ross Burden. He was oh, outstanding. No. He was mm. a Wikipedia at the time, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. it's true. <laughs> but why people were so drawn to the show? Why do you think that? Well, the show was a such a fabulous format. You know, if you've got a really good format, then it's simply enough for everybody to understand it. Here we are. I have a bag of shopping. I've spent five pounds. Here it is. I've got a bit of chicken. I've got some rice. I've got some peas. A few uh, well, herbs are on the uh, in the larder. But what can you do with this in 20 minutes? And I think a lot of people face that. They didn't have 20 minutes. It would probably take them a lot longer. She talked about professional chefs. But they could relate to, oh, right. Suddenly, you have a format where, oh, let's see what you come up with. That, that draws you in. 
Then you go to the other side and the chef has another bag of food, which is completely different. And so the competition starts now. So already as a viewer, you're watching this, you're thinking, what are they going to do with that? Ah, who's going to do it better than the other one? Then you throw in a couple of guests, which have a little bit of a story to tell whilst the food's being cooked. Then, um, as I say, the drama of having it against the clock and there's me going, 15 minutes to go, 10 minutes to go, 8 minutes to go. And then I suppose, even though I started cooking on it um, for the 10 years, for, and it ran for 16 years, so I was cooking on it for the best part of five or six years. And then we had the 10-year period when I came back from working in America, doing my show on NBC, coming back to present it. So I wasn't the chef anymore. I was the presenter but my chefing thing was still with me, David. And I kind of, and the chefs knew that, but I brought a little bit of humour to it too. I light, light-heartened it. I made it, I humanised it a little bit. I think that people today, even it stopped in 2010. So that's what, 12 years ago. And people are still coming up to me when I go out to the supermarket. They want to talk about Ready, Steady, Cook. They want to say how it inspired them to go into the industry. They want to say how... Love the love of food came from watching Ready Steady Cook. Some people say, I don't cook, but Ready Steady Cook taught me how to, if you like, behave when I went out to eat. Because suddenly I, instead of just ordering fish and chips or steak and chips, I knew what a jus was. I knew what a reduction was. Do you know what I mean? I could understand uh, a little filet mignon or something like that. I didn't get embarrassed by it because. You know, we are eating out more than we've ever done before, getting food delivered to our house more than we've ever done. But you go back to the 90s, you, people were still embarrassed. People weren't sure. People were still going out for birthday meals, you know, special occasions. Now, the special occasion is because you're hungry. <laughs> so you just go out to eat or you phone up your delivery or you do whatever you want to do. So I think it was, um, I think it was so informative. And the most important thing of all, actually, David, is that it was a time when there were only a few channels on the television. Now there's 174. Then there was only four. You had limited things that you could watch a lot of people tuned into ready steady cook and then they talked about it wow did you see that today yeah. and it it created a a bit of competition in the house too oh that's a red tomato you're joking it's green pepper all day long you don't know what you're talking about you know so you have these debates going on and it was fantastic especially when people held up the cardboards and stuff like that and you saw the red tomatoes and the green peppers it was it was colourful, it was bright, it was airy, it was fresh, and it was informative. And I think all of those different things made it the success that it was. I, one of the reasons I think the show was very good, you said everything right, but it's also, it was stripped away from anything else and the focus was just on food. Nowadays, and I understand yeah. because the times are different, but people could not, your focus was literally on the food, so there was yeah. no we'd be right back. When you come back, you're going to figure out what happened to that soup. Everything was on the spot. And I think mm. it was, I loved it. I mean, I remember being young and just running um, from a, from school and watch BBC in Portugal. And 
I loved it. I think was was really nice. But I think yeah. you're right, and I think there's uh, always this talk of the BBC selling on becoming a commercial station, and I said, please, please, please don't. I mean, what? It's unique. It's still unique in the world. No commercials, nothing. It's you. Even when you're watching sport on that channel, there's no you know, no one telling you to buy washing up powder or anything like that. It's just talking about that subject. So you feel very much part of it. You feel involved in it. And that is what the BBC and everybody in television seems to work their way from the BBC going into other things. It's like going into a classic kitchen and getting a really, really good training as a chef. You know, you get a good training. You know what a hollandaise sauce is, Bernays sauce, you know, a roux is, you know, how to make your mayonnaise, you know, all the basic things about that, you know, what brunoise is, chiffonade is, you know, all these things because you've had the basic training. And from that platform, you can go and do anything. You travel all over the world. What aspects of food culture would you like British to adopt and in the reverse? British food culture you wish was adapted um, elsewhere? I think the, uh, I don't know, I think the, the Brits being an island, there's, there's been an arrogance about Great Britain because they are an island, whereas when you go to Portugal or you go to France or you go to Italy, they very much have their kind of classics that stay rigid. There's not much flexibility going here. And I think that um, in Britain, because they were so rigid for so long and it's become more of a multicultural kind of you know society, a bit more diverse, the food that you get here is unbelievable. I mean, there is so, there's a restaurant from every country. I live in, in South London, Wandsworth, and I've just been down the road to buy some food. And there is 10 different cultural cuisines in a very sh little small high street because yeah. that's the... Uh, and they're not there to look pretty. They're there because people want that type of food. So I think that they've... Um, when you've been, if you like, when you've been restricted and you've been giving your roast beef or your bangers and mash for so long, you feel like, isn't there anything, is there something more? And then suddenly it arrives and you go, wow. So I think the, uh, they have definitely kind of taken on all those, the, these wonderful foods. And it has, in a way, David, it has improved the quality of food here. So if you do have sausage and mash, the sausages are, you know where your sausages come from, The grade of meat is really high that used in the sausage, even though I still believe that you need fat and all those different flavorings to make a sausage take great. I don't want a sausage which is just meat, you know. I want mm -hmm. flavor. Yeah. It's almost like when you've got a burger, I use chuck steak, 18% fat, because it's flavor. When you're mm -hmm. cooking it, you can add stuff to it. So I think that, uh, and the potatoes, you know, potatoes that are really good potatoes that are flavored with some butter and... Uh, You know, they've just, they've enhanced it some way. They might put a bit of horseradish or a bit of mustard through it or something like that to give it a bit more of character to complement what you're eating. And even the onion gravy, the reduction that's used in it, it's not just like a, a bisto we've got here. You know, one of those instant gravies. Everywhere in the world, you've got an instant gravy. But this is a proper reduction. And so I think what they've done here in Britain really well is they've taken on their own foods and they've moved it to another tier and they've embraced other cultural cuisines really embraced it you know thai indian indian's always been here chinese always been here but the whole thai thing that's just 
exploded, Indonesian. And it's now, when you talk about Indian food, it's not just Indian food, it's what part of India. It's a bit like America. If you go to India, there's loads of different states. Like you've got 50-odd states in America. Well, there's all these different states in India, and they all have their own style of food, curries, spices. You know, the north up in Kashmir, very different to the south down in Goa and the beach, where it's much more fruity influenced and stuff like that. So when you have that in Portugal too, you know, the mountain food compared to the food down by the beach, it's different, right? Yeah. So I think that uh, that's, that's changed. I think, I think what, what could Britain offer the world? I, I don't know what it's like. I've, I'm, uh, I'm going down to Mexico soon to go and do a bit of a recce. I'm going there at the end of the end of the month. And, um, I'm genuinely excited about that, but uh, I, I think that if anything, if Britain can offer it, is the fact that they like to know, they like to localise their food more and more and more now. And I, I want to see whether that's happening across the globe because, the, you know, if you go to somewhere like the Caribbean, because of the tourist trade, they import everything. Everything's imported. And I think it's really nice when you can... Uh, go somewhere and eat local produce. And I think a lot more of that is happening here now than ever before. They want to know where their food comes from. It's a lot more seasonal now than it's ever been before. And people like things to be a little bit more, shall I say, organic than before. It was just a case of uh, how much does that cost? How cheap is that? How much can I get that for? So I think that's beginning to change. Well, food from abroad, we've already, I've, I've explained to you, we've already taken on these wonderful cultures. And you go now and you meet chefs and, you know, some of them, I met an English guy the other day and I said, so what do you specialise? He says sushi and sashimi and stuff like that. And that's his, that's his thing. And one day he wants to have his own restaurant and stuff like that. He said, and I said, well, why aren't you doing it now? He said, fish is too expensive at the moment. You know, and I said, yeah. well, I don't think that's going to change. Do you, David? I think, you know, <laughs> you know, the fish is is really, really expensive. And, you know, what we're probably having to do is, and a lot of my chef friends, is that just means that, you know, the it's one or two ounces smaller because you don't want to change the price on your menu because people will go, oh, I'm not paying that. So you make it a little bit different and you present the food a little bit different on the plate to make it look more attractive. That's yeah. what we have to do. You have to find a way. Your dad used to say, don't act like your shit doesn't sink. <laughs> That's not all he used to say. He used to no, say, among uh, other things, yeah. yes. Yeah. But did you carry that with you? Uh, and what did that mean to you? Um, well, it meant that uh, it's exactly what it, what it says on the tin. You know, don't behave like you're not a, a normal human being. We, you know, don't carry on as if your shit don't stink. Everybody's shit stinks. It kind of brings you back down to earth and I suppose having been exposed to that uh, when I was a young man and a young person growing up it hasn't flowed over to my brother or sister they like it I'm the one that was attracted to show business you always have that in families one of them one of the children just come out and you think well that's it you know and um, I have three children now and I suppose that uh, uh, one my son does brilliant music and stuff but he's trained now to be a counsellor where my daughter's the one that's explosive and wants to come out. You know, she's got that effervescence about her. And the younger one is learning that. But um, 
I don't know quite where he's at yet, you know, studying at university. But I think what I what I gained from that experience with my father and seeing his journey in show business was to be respectful to everybody. It's almost like I am um, one of the reasons when I worked in the kitchen that nobody left my kitchen when I was at the Westbury for two and a half years. That's down to the kitchen porter and everybody because I treated everybody equally. You know how important the kitchen porter is? He's as important as your saucier or your poissonier or your patissier. You know what I mean? They are very, very important. Everybody keeps everything connected. And I think that is what I've learned. I've learned even in the other side of business that I do a lot of TV and stuff like that is I respect everybody. If it's the runner, that person that's running around, guess what? One day they're going to be a producer. And it's really ironic that, you know, I've been doing television now for 35, yeah, 35, 36 years. And I see those people who are runners that are now producers. Some of them are executive producers. So that is the way it is. And you know what? I see them and they see me and we banter like it was the first day that they were on set. How are you? How are you? We have a bit of a laugh. We remember things. We joke about things. And I think that's what it should be because you have that respect and because you take time out for those people. And any time I do a, uh, I, I do a shoot, I always take one night, I always find it, we finish work and I take everybody out. And I say, come on, we all go out and have a drink and something to eat. And I pay for it and I look after them because it's not that I'm earning because the money in the industry is not what it was, but it's just to show the appreciation. And it doesn't matter what level you're at. And, you know, God, and do you know what, David? They give, they give. If they don't come to you and say, I've done an extra hour's overtime today, that doesn't come into it because we're helping each other. And, uh, you know, and that's something really strong. What was your first memory of taste? I didn't realise this, but and I'm not being rude or crude here, but my mother's milk, it wasn't until my uh, I had children myself and my wife was breastfeeding the children and I had that taste of the milk and it was just me and it was, ah, oh, I just tasted it. And it took me straight back and it made me kind of realise how important taste was because that is your first taste and that is your first love connection. And it feeds you, it nourishes you. And it was something that I, I remember the taste of it because you kind of think it's going to be like the milk you taste take from the fridge. It's nothing like that at all. It was totally different. Then moving on, I should imagine it was when my mother would, she'd love to bake. She's always baking cakes and doing stuff. And one of my favorite experiences is when she gave me the wooden spoon from the cake mix thing and I'd lick the wooden spoon and it had butter, sugar, the flour on it, and egg. It was all vanilla. I remember the strong taste of vanilla coming through too. So I remember those flavours. And they they were the ones that gave me, that was the foundation. That was the basis of me thinking, wow, how does this taste? How does that taste? And forever, I was always tasting stuff. And I, I don't know if you know this, but you know I do talk about it quite a lot. But um when people go to another country and you are an immigrant too, you realize when you're in a strange country, you integrate. So, uh, and many years ago, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have these things. People went to church to integrate. So you had people there, Chinese, Indian, Italian, uh, Greek, 
Scottish, Polish, people from all over would meet at the church. And the way they would share their friendship was say, come and have a meal. And so from a very young age, I mean, I was trying food. I was my friend, Indian friend who lived up the road. I'd go there and I walk in the house and whoa, whoa, the smell, you know, that strong curry smell. And then I'd taste the food and I wasn't too sure about that. Well, after two or three, three visits, I loved it. Same with Dino and Vincent Sanfilippo who lived up the road. Every time I went up there, the mother, she was enormous. She was so big, you couldn't see the cooker. She would cover the whole <laughs> cooker. She was so big. And when she walked, one her bottom would go up and down like this. But her food was amazing. Yep. I've never eaten food like that. Certainly fell in love with Italian food. Bang, right there and then. Right there and then. And the, the extraordinary thing about it, and I don't know if this happens in your life a lot, but the husband was so small. <laughs> Tiny little man. It's called a balance. Yeah. It's called a balance. <laughs> the little man, little man, and she was, she put her, oh my God, she was amazing. Most underrated ingredient. I kind of like sumac because I like the freshness, the zestiness that it brings to food without, you know, having to hit it too much with lemon because I think lemon and lime, we use it so much in food, but it, predominating the acid really does you know as soon as it hits there the taste buds on the front of your tongue you're lost after that i kind of like sumac um underestimated god dear i know this we've got i know it's great i love them i love it i love <laughs> it it, make, it makes us think as chefs i think the um all uh, all purpose seasoning that my mum used to bring back from jamaica because they used to go somewhere they used to have all the spices and stuff it's a It's a bit like tar, yeah. mm -hmm. which is just like, you know, that is the, the king of the shop spice, yeah. isn't it? And all-purpose seasoning was a little bit like that. And and one of the reasons I say it's underestimated, because when I smell it, it reminds me of my childhood instantly. And the combination of cinnamon and nutmeg and uh, coriander, uh, that's the coriander seed as opposed to the fresh coriander, all of these things, paprika, and salt and pepper, all ground down together, all blended together perfectly. So they're the type of spices that I, I really, really love. I do like also, uh, which is, uh, people underestimate a bit, is I like a good quality um, organic vinegar. And I know people might not say, oh, what, just a vinegar. It's not white wine vinegar, a good organic vinegar. I love it. And more so than, you know, when I have a salad, I love putting my thumb on the top and drizzling a little bit of that with a good bit of olive oil on the top of it. Not so much the lemon juice. I don't, as I said, I don't want that. I think, but the quality, organic, you know, which is slightly cloudy. It's not like the perfect vinegar that we get there. Overrated ingredient. Overrated. Um, what's overrated? I think sugar is very, very addictive, but it's kind of overrated because I think we can find sweetness in a lot of things, but we feel that we always have to add sweetness. It's almost like you're trying to wean yourself off sugar when it goes into your coffee and then suddenly you taste the coffee totally yeah. different so i think that you know sugar it's the most addictive thing but it is overrated because i think we just pile it onto everything and i think you do have to be a little bit careful with it um i try and try and control it and uh you know my father my father was ended up you know had to inject insulin into his body every day And I think that's changing now, but I do think we our intake of sugar has to be controlled a little bit better. Best midnight snack. 
Uh, oh, a sweet bun. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can't tell you her name. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, my late night snack is I do like baking, and uh, yeah, I've got my I've just I baked some some cinnamon buns which I, I like. And I have that late night cup of tea, a little bit of a cinnamon bun. Normally it's only about half of a cinnamon bun, but I really like it. That's probably my kind of Achilles heel, if you like, is that, you know, late at night, I do like a little cup of tea in a bun or something like that, even though, you know, uh, when it comes to the day and stuff like that, I try and avoid the too many pickies and stuff like that. Not consciously, I just don't do it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because I'm trying to sort of control that. But, uh, and I do... Uh, I like a, yeah, I sit down, friend comes over and we play backgammon and um, sometimes he, yeah, he brings a nice bottle of uh, scotch or something like that, whiskey, and we'll have a little sip of that and play some backgammon until the wee hours of the morning and play some uh, nice uh, Al Green music or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> One meal you can have for the rest of your life. My mum's red bean stew. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know... Um, it's just because it's comforting. It's just the love. And I think it's sometimes food, you have memories with food. And every time, as I said, every time she prepared something like that, the table was full of people. There was loads of people around, whether they were relatives or friends. It was or just the family. There was always conversation. And when you eat something like that, it takes you back. And it won't take me back to one or two different moments. It will take me back to... 52 different moments of yeah. joy, you know? A strange food combination that you do, two or three ingredients together that some people might think it's a little weird. Uh, when I take off my toenails, I push it between my teeth. <laughs> to... <laughs> not, sure, not sure where this is going, but let's go. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, no, it's very private. You know, you're just going to pick a bit. And it's kind of like becomes your floss. But, uh, oh, my God. I think a lot of people do do that. Though. Probably, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I don't have too many uh, kinky things with uh, with food. Um, Someone told me the other day they put a peppermint candy cane inside of a dill pickle and they eat it. Wow. That's aggressive, wow. see? Wow. And that's their little that's their little bag. I'm trying. Yeah, to, that's, that's I, their I, little I, thing. I, you see, I think we all probably have it, but we're not even conscious of the fact that we're doing it. And and then you know, someone like you mentions it, and you go, "Hmm, do like peanut butter, banana, and jam." Okay. Do you know? Yeah. I, that 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 combo works with me. But the toast has to be crunchy, not soft toast. It has to be really crunchy. Then peanut butter. A little bit of a strawberry jam, yeah, and the sliced banana. I really like that. That is creamy a, or crunchy. A, um, crunchy, crunchy peanut butter. Yeah, crunchy peanut okay. butter. Because it's a whole debate. I know, I yeah, know. People, it's all yeah. about textures. When you bite into it, you get that. Mm, you get a little nugget of peanut into your tooth, and then I pick my toes and I push it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the name of the uh, podcast is turning chickens and breaking dishes that's actually two portuguese phrases turning okay. chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means that's uh, someone that have exceeded expectations um do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes 
Or both. Breaking more dishes. A bit of both, probably. A bit of both. I think when you've been doing stuff as long as we have, you uh, you know, you you have that. I like to refer to it as the kind of roller coaster. Uh, life is a roller coaster, and um, and it's fine when you're up there and you're kind of float, floating around. Inevitably, there will be a time when there will be a dip. Hence, me saying how important it is to be kind to everybody on your way up, because when you're coming down, you might meet them again. But gradually, and this happened well, maybe six or seven years ago, that I started to climb again. I was only a little bit down, then I started to climb again. And when you're at that elevation, you can feel yourself coming up there. What you've gained now is all that wonderful experience from the last time you're up there. And so you should, we should know how to control it then. Do you know what I mean? It's uh, mm-hmm. We all know that some of us have been married twice. And it doesn't always work out the way you want it to. Yeah, yeah. But uh, generally speaking, I think that I've, uh, with food and the love of food and the appreciation that I've had and the time that I've uh, spent uh, with people, I've, uh, I, I can genuinely say that each time I, I, I come back up, I look forward to it. I look forward to getting to the top where it's just beautiful sunlight again. And, you know, the whole world is there open again for you. And to embrace it, not to, not to be so frightened now, not to think that people will judge you, because you'll always get judged by some. It's how you feel. You know what they say, that great saying, people will forget what you did and people for, will forget what you said, but people will never forget the way you make them feel. Being in the show business in a way, which is TV, is it difficult? Like, I don't have the experience, obviously. You know, I'm a, I'm a chef at an embassy here, so I'm, I'm mm. the chef of the European Union embassy in DC. And I don't have, I'm not part of the, this is the closest I get from the showbiz, which is my podcast. But how difficult it is from going, the lights are on and then they're off for a while. How do you cope for someone that it's so used to get that those lights on? Um, I think it depends on the stability that you have. Uh, and stability meaning your grounding. And uh, I'm really, really fortunate, David, that I live uh, in the area that I was brought up in. I've been all my life, virtually. I still have friends that I went to kindergarten with, primary school with, <clears throat> that I see. And we have nicknames for each other. So I've never lost the ability to just be one of them. I think that uh, having that grounding and having that friendship or those friendships, people from school, you just, you don't ever feel the insecurities of it, you know? And just the fact that people say, oh, you know, you're a, you're a, you're, you're a celebrity. Well, some people can cope with it. Um, I've got friends who are in the industry and they, literally hide when they go out they put the hat on um i can't i can't be bothered with that people see me hi hello normally it brings some joy and i'll tell you a typical example my my son and one of my my youngest son went to school in chester and one of his friends fathers was a very important high profile figure at a very important football club and um His mother was saying to him, well, you know, he should learn how to... Uh, he was going through a very, very difficult time. The club was going through a very, very difficult time and people were uh, wanting to go and stand outside his house and shout and scream, maybe throw stones and stuff like that. It was pretty nasty. And his mother turned around to our son and said, it must be terrible because 
what would it be like if your father was in a situation, your, your dad, me, was in a situation like that? And he said, well, it would never happen to him. He said, I don't know anybody that hates my dad, Ainsley. Nobody hates him. He's not, it's like a football person. He's just a happy person that people are happy to see him. I've never heard, and, you know, and my other children, they've gone through school, they've gone through university, they've gone through whatever they've gone through, and they've never heard that negativity. So perhaps, David, I've been really lucky that I haven't had those issues in life, yeah. that I haven't had to make those decisions about what side of the road to walk on, why the reason that you're black or you're white, the reason that you're straight or you're gay. I've never had those issues because I just treat everyone the same, you know, and I thank my, uh, I thank my parents for that. You know, they, they gave me a lovely balance of life and everybody was always accepted. Once that door, once you open that door, come on in. And uh, I remember when we were growing up, we had a gay vicar and he was the most wonderful man. And my mum would always invite, invite him round for food and stuff like that. And it wasn't until years later, I was talking to my mother and I said, ah, oh, how's so-and-so, I won't mention his name, um, the gay vicar. She said, gay? What do you mean gay? She had no idea. Yeah. She, she didn't enter her head that, that that was the case. And I just think, how lovely is that? That That is why I am the way that I am. Because everything is open, everything is acceptable, nobody's judged. No, you're coming to break bread with me, you're coming to drink wine with me. End of story. At the end of the podcast, I tell my guests to sell their fish. Not that you need to sell your fish. In Portugal, if someone tells you to sell your fish, that means to talk about yourself in a way. I know you're on TV. You just mentioned a little bit the Christmas show, but where people can find you, you know, what, what can we expect? Um, well, I've got the uh, Christmas show, which I've got coming up, and I'm doing a, uh, a show at the moment for ITV, which is the World Cup Flavors. We've got another two weeks to go of that. And, of course, after that, the World Cup officially starts. Yes. And then in January, I've got another uh, ITV show that I've just recorded. There's 10 one-hour shows, which will go out every weekend. And hopefully, um, we don't know if this is definitely happening, but I could be on my way down to Mexico in the new year to make a series because my uh, cousin's wife is Mexican and um, her, uh, her brother is Billy Mendez, who's a famous um, rock star out there. And uh, we'd like to go to, I'd like, I'd love to be able to experience Mexico with someone who's Mexican, someone who's not just been paid because a television company is coming, but someone who has lived there and appreciated and has the love of the country and understands the roots and everything. I'd love to be able to do that. I don't just want to go somewhere and say, this is how they do this here, and this is how they do it here. I want yeah. something more than that. Well, this was a pleasure. I was, ah. I was trying for years. Finally, I got you. Um, Thank you very much. If England meets Portugal in the final, think about me, but we might win. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and it was a pleasure. It was. Thank you very much indeed. Lovely talking to you. Thank you very much, Ansley, for coming on the podcast. For everyone, the podcast is back, turning chickens and breaking dishes. Every week, we'll have a special guest. If you have any suggestions for a guest, please reach out to me. You can go to the website, David, with the E at the end, don't forget, davidgmartins.com, or just find me on Instagram at davidgmartinschef. It was a pleasure. I'll see you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>